This morning, um, I'm going to talk about the Bible. And uh, people have asked me, what do you can speak on? And I said, I'm going to talk about the Bible. Well, yeah, duh, that's what we talk about every week. But this morning, I'm going to actually speak about the Bible. And, and specifically, how, how do we know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? We do believe the Bible, the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and it's, it's the foundation uh, of our faith. It's, it's the basis for everything we believe in, and we need to be prepared to defend what we believe in. I heard a, a snippet of a, of a radio show uh, as I was preparing for this, and uh, the radio show was about creationism, and there was a um, uh, the radio host and, uh, and somebody who he was talking to who identified themselves as a Christian pastor. And uh, the, the question came up from the, from the host. He said, uh, do you believe the Bible? And, and the pastor said, yes I, yes, I do. Of course I do. And the follow-up question was, well, why do you believe the Bible? And he was unprepared for that. He didn't know how to answer that question. And it, it's, it's not, the interview went very much downhill from there. And, uh, you know, I guess I, I'm, so my, my question for you this morning is, what if I asked you that question this morning? Would you have a good answer for that? Why do you believe the Bible? Uh, and as I've already said, it's it is it's foundation it's foundational for our our faith. Uh, we do need to be prepared for that. And uh, so, what we're getting into this morning is an area called apologetics. And uh, apologetics basically means uh, it's it's a defense of our faith. It's what do we believe and why do we believe it? First uh, Peter three fifteen says this. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always be prepared to make a defense for your faith. So, uh, how do we know it's trustworthy? Uh, and, and this morning, we're, we are going to look at, at for a defense of why the, the Bible is trustworthy. Now, I'm going to start us out with uh, our doctrinal statement. Uh, the Hope's doctrinal statement, uh, this is... Um, and. This is the number two point on our, out of about 15 points. Uh, it says, We believe the Bible to be the inspired, inerrant Word of God, authoritative, complete, and totally sufficient for our faith and practice. You know, so that's it's number two, right after we believe in one God, creator of heaven and earth. And if, um, if you look at a lot of churches' uh, statements of faith, or uh, a lot of um, denominations, you will see something very similar, and it's always right at the top, either number one or two, uh, for, that, for their statement of faith, is that the importance of the Bible in, the, uh, uh, in their faith. Now, I, I want to just point out uh, a couple things here. Um, it, it talks about the inspired, um, I'm sorry, it's, get this right, in, inspired, inerrant word of God. Those, those two words are very closely linked. Uh, if we really believe the Bible to be the inspired of Word of God, if we believe that God, the all-powerful God, the creator of everything, inspired his word, then it, it sure better be inerrant. And that's kind of where we're going to go this morning, is uh, uh, how do we know the Bible is inerrant? Now, before I, I go much further, I just want to give credit where credit is due. I've borrowed a lot of the uh, slides and stuff that we're going to use and some of these thoughts from, from Jay Siegert. Uh, some of you know him. Uh, he's been here to speak, actually. Uh, he's the um, managing director for the Starting Point Project. And uh, uh, I'm reusing some of this with his permission. Okay, so I want to I put up a, a passage on the, uh, on the screen here. 
Where's this passage from? My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and mine arm shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arm shall they trust. Now, some people might think, well, maybe that sounds a little bit like Isaiah or Ezekiel or the Psalms. No, this is Second uh, Nephi chapter 8, verse 5. It's from the Book of Mormon. Okay, now, now it's like, okay, I've thrown a whole other thing at you. Okay, how do we know the Bible is the inspired Word of God? And not some of these other religious books. You know, things like the Book of Mormon, um, the, uh, the Quran, which the uh, Islam faith is based on, or the Hindu Vedas. Um, so, uh, I think we can, we can start right with the Bible. And, you know, and for some of us, that might be the first place you go when I say, how do you know the Bible's inspired word of God? Uh, in a lot of places in the Bible, it says, thus says the Lord. A lot of the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. That, that to me right there says, this is what God says. That itself is, uh, is reliable. Second Timothy 3.16 goes further and says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, training, and uh, correcting and training in righteousness. So, we're done, right? All scriptures, God breathed. Let's, let's close the book and uh, and we're done with uh, with that. But uh, a skeptic might say, "Wait a minute, that's that's circular reasoning. You can't say it's true because it says it's true. That makes it true." Um, and uh, you know, a good response to that would be, "Well, the Bible is not actually a single book. It's actually sixty-six books." So when the Apostle Paul says, all scriptures God breathed, we, he, you know, he, perhaps he was talking about the Old Testament. And when Peter says that the things that Paul says are scripture, uh, that's Peter talking about Paul's writings. Um, and so the, that does lend more credibility. It takes away that circular reasoning argument. But we'll give the skeptics some leeway and say, okay, we can go beyond uh, it's true because it says it's true. Uh, we, we can take away that circular reasoning argument. And that's one of the things we're going to be looking at this morning is what, what, would, this, what would the skeptics say about that? So as we go through that this morning, uh, we're going to look at three tests that we could apply to the Bible or really to anything that, claim to be, that claims to be truth. Uh, number one, is it internally consistent? Number two, is it historically accurate? And number three, is it prophetically accurate? Now, the Bible as a whole is about 800,000 words in the English language. It's, it's a little less than that. Uh, so it's either going to pass or fail on a grand scale. That, that's a lot of words. And I, as we go, we're going to see that the other religious books fall down on these tests. <clears throat> so the, the Bible was written um, over a period of about 1,600 years by 40 authors who were living on three continents, and it was written in three different languages. And the amazing thing is, there's just a single unifying topic. That's God's working through history for the redemption and restore, restoration of all his creation. That, is, that in itself is remarkable, that, that God would create something that you can't expect that something written over that period of time would have been so consistent, have a, such a consistent theme without the, God's intervention. So now, as, as we look at consistency, to me, that really means something. It's, it's does it contradict itself is, is the, the heart of, is it consistent? Um, and as we look at um, 
or well, when we're, we're confronted with alleged contradictions, there's a few things that we would first need to consider. Uh, and, and, and three questions that we might want to ask when we're, we're confronted with these contradictions. First of all, is it, uh, is it different aspects of the same situation? For instance, uh, one contradiction might be Robert is rich, and then we might say Robert is poor. Are they, are they different aspects? Robert might be rich monetarily, maybe he's poor in spirit. A second question that we might ask, is it symbolic language? For example, uh, we might uh, say the Lord is my rock. We don't really believe that God is a rock. Uh, it's symbolic of, of his strength. And a third question we would, we would ask of an alleged contradiction is, is it supporting, I'm sorry, is it supplemental information? We might say that, that Tim has a son and also say Tim has a son and a daughter. The second statement adds supplemental information. Tim has a son and a daughter is just extra information and that's not a contradiction. Now we're gonna look at some examples of contradictions uh, but we're not going to look at those are those three things are usually pretty obvious um, and I as I was as I was looking at this topic I thought okay let, let's go where let, let's see what the skeptics really have to say let's see what the skeptics um, say are contradictions and I went to the American Atheists website and they have a, um, a page devoted to biblical contradictions which you know, in itself is kind of sad that they would feel uh, so motivated to try to disprove the Bible. Um, but maybe even sadder was, uh, it was kind of obvious that they hadn't spent much time researching their contradictions. Uh, some of them were obvious from context that it wasn't a, a contradiction, and they were just, there, there was actually nothing there that I felt was worthy addressing. So this morning, we're going to look at two, uh, two alleged contradictions that uh, came from another source. Actually, these uh, Jay Siegert, uh, were two, two that Jay Siegert talked about. Uh, so number one was the timing of the crucifixion. Now, in, in Mark chapter 15, we read this. Now, it was the third hour when they crucified him. So third hour. In John chapter 19, we read this. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover, it was about the sixth hour, and Pilate said to the Jews, Look, your king. So they shouted, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. So the difficulty here is, uh, if he was uh, crucified on the third hour, how could he be on trial in the sixth hour? And this is, this is easily resolved uh, in that Mark uh, was writing to a Jewish audience, and John was writing to a Roman audience. So for Jews, uh, time was marked, or hours were marked since, uh, uh, since sunrise or since sunset. And for Romans, hours were marked beginning at midnight. So the sixth hour of the day in John would have been about 6 a.m., and the third hour of the day in Mark would have been about 9 a.m. So once you resolve that, those different audiences, this, this uh, contradiction's resolved, and we have the trial happening at about 6 a.m., and the crucifixion about 9 a.m. Uh, the second one we're going to look at is the healing of the blind man. Uh, was he leaving Jericho, or was he entering Jericho? So Mark 10 says this, As Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, 
Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was by the roadside. And then in Luke chapter 18, as Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. So here's, here's the difficulty here. One, says, one scripture says the, Jesus was drawing near to Jericho, and the other says he was leaving. And this, again, is, is fairly easy resolved looking at, at, the, uh, at the history of what was there. Uh, there were actually two Jerichos. The Jericho of the Old Testament that uh, the Israelites marched around uh, was, was still there. It was still a town. And Herod, in Jesus' time, had built a new town of Jericho two miles south of the original one. So it was possible for Jesus to leave one Jericho and enter the, in the other, and he would have encountered that blind man between the two Jerichos. So there's, I'm sure there are many other examples uh, that we could come up with of, of uh, alleged contradictions, but you do a little research and it's typically not hard to dispel many of those contradictions. You know, and this is an area where the Bible really passes with flying colors. So we've looked at internal consistency. The second thing we want to look at this morning is historical accuracy. Now, this is, uh, this is one where skeptics, especially archaeologists, often say, well, we read that in the Bible, but there's no archaeological evidence. That's been said many times uh, throughout history, and then at some point the, something is dug up, and they say, oh, look, here, here's really a, a reference to this person. They really did exist. Um, Archaeology is the science of uh, uh, people and places and events and customs, and we're going to look at a few of these things uh, as, we, uh, as we go here. Now, I just, I just want to, as a side note, uh, I just want to share with you, we, uh, we have a video, and, and uh, happy to make it available for anybody who wants it. It's a documentary uh, about archaeology related to the Exodus and the time in, in Egypt, uh, the time of... Uh, 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 Jacob's 12 sons in, in Egypt, uh, as well as their exodus from there. And it is fascinating seeing the evidence that's been dug up that looks exactly like the biblical story. Uh, but many archaeologists discount it because it's 200 years uh, too early or too late uh, from, from where they say it should be. Uh, it's, and it's a fascinating video that we'd uh, love to share with anybody that's interested. So we're going to look at some people. Uh, King David is the, the first one. 2 Samuel 5 says this. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. So here's a guy. Um, his life is probably more well-documented than anybody else in the Bible, I suspect. We have stories all the way uh, through his life uh, of what was going on. And yet there was no... Um, there was no archaeological evidence for him until uh, 1993. And they, they dug up this. This is the uh, uh, Tel Dan Steel, which refers to the House of David. I don't think anybody ever questions his existence since he was so well documented. Uh, the next person is Pontius Pilate. Luke 3 says this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. And then the, uh, the Pontius Pilate stone was uncovered in uh, 1961. On there was an inscription dating to the time of Jesus, which read, To Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judah. Another person is uh, James, the brother of Jesus. Matthew 13 says this, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his, Mary called, his, his mother called Mary? And not, 
are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And in uh, 2002, this was uncovered, the ossuary of James. An, an ossuary was, uh, it was a box used to contain the, the bones of the dead. And on it was this inscription, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. So that's just a few people uh, that related to the, uh, the uh, passages in the Bible. Uh, another thing we're going to look at is, is uh, places. Um, Hezekiah's pool and tunnel is one of those. 2 Kings 20.20 20 says this, The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now, Hezekiah and the, and the people of Judah um, were under attack by the Assyrians in about 700 B.C. So Hezekiah, anticipating that attack, built a tunnel to bring water into the city in case they were attacked. And there you can see this was uh, dug up in 1838, uh, 100, what does it say, 130 feet underground. Uh, they, they found Hezekiah's tunnel, and the next slide shows the pool that it connects to. Uh, and on it was an inscription from the engineers talking about how the tunnel was built and, and when it was built. Uh, next, just uh, we'll, we'll look at one event that's recorded in the Bible. Uh, many of you are familiar with the uh, Battle of Jericho. And God gave very uh, specific instructions that's recorded in Joshua 6. Uh, when the Israelites first came into the Promised Land, uh, this, this was the first city they, they uh, conquered. And uh, God gave instructions that they were to march around the city for six days. And on the seventh day, they were to march around seven times and then blow the trumpets and, uh, and shout, and the walls of the city were going to fall down. And... Uh, Again, this is one that the uh, archaeologists said there was no evidence of walls at that time. But uh, they have since uncovered, I don't, I don't think I have any pictures of this. Uh, they have since uncovered those, uh, those walls. They have actually found two sets of walls that uh, fell down. Um, God also gave them in specific instructions that uh, they were not to loot the city. They were to take the item, the metal items, and everything else they were supposed to leave. The, and so when they uh, unearthed the remains of Jericho, it was interesting. They found uh, clay pots that were full of grain. They'd been, the city had been burned, and they could tell the grain had been burned. But the, uh, the, the, uh, the city obviously had not been looted, um, you know, which actually doesn't make a lot of sense because an army runs on food. An army needs food. So for an army to attack and not take the food uh, was really unusual. So this is an area, we, we talked about um, historical accuracy. Uh, th this, is a, this is a place where the Book of Mormon uh, really falls short. There are a lot of things in the Book of Mormon which seem to be crafted by an overly active imagination. And even uh, Brigham Young University has come out with, with uh, materials that say, we, they can't really say where a lot of the things are that happened in the, in the, that are listed in the Book of Mormon. But uh, it, within your imagination, you can imagine what it was like. So, so the third thing, we've looked at uh, internal consistency, historical accuracy, and the third thing we're going to look at is prophetic accuracy. I, and I think this is maybe the most compelling thing in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Bible. Uh, there are over 8,000 prophetic passages that make over 1,800 predictions, and that winds up to be about 27% of the Bible. Now, it's, it's kind of fun to uh, uh, look at some failed predictions outside the Bible. And, and here's just a couple of, that I want to share with you. 
by the year 2000, the letters C, X, and Q will be abandoned because unnecessary. This was made by the curator of the Smithsonian Institution in, the, in about 1900. That was a, I don't think uh, that one came true. The next one, fooling around with alternating current, AC current, is just a waste of time. Nobody will ever use it. It's Thomas Edison said this in, in 1889. And thank goodness he didn't get his way because our, our electric grid would be a mess if he got his way. <clears throat> he, he wanted to go with direct current. The, the next one, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. <laughs> this president of IBM, <clears throat> 1943. You know, you look around this room and there's, there's, I think, you think about phones and smartwatches and computers and so on. There's hundreds of computers just in this room. You know, when, when you're wrong, it can be very easy to spot. Uh, you know, and, and God, uh, God's view of prophecy is recorded in Isaiah 46. I don't think I have this on, on the slides, but I, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. You know, God's view of, of history is one looking over it. He is, he is a timeless God. Uh, and he, he knows the beginning from the, from the end, and his purposes do stand. Now, there's some, some very specific uh, Bible prophecies, and I just want one Old Testament prophecy that's been fulfilled uh, before Jesus' time is the city of Tyre. Uh, it's recorded, uh, the prophecy against Tyre is recorded in Ezekiel 26. Now, God was going to judge Tyre because uh, they had rejoiced over the fall of Jerusalem. And, and God was going to uh, bring judgment upon them because of that. In, in chapter, uh, in Ezekiel 26, verse 7, it says this. For the Lord God says this, Behold, I am going to bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And, and we know that in uh, 586 B.C., uh, Nebuchadnezzar did come in from the north, and he, he, he besieged Tyre for 13 years and eventually uh, conquered it. And then uh, we go on, we see in, in uh, verse 3 of that chapter, Behold, I am against you, Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. After uh, many, many nations did uh, follow on and, and, uh, and they raided, once Nebuchadnezzar had knocked down his defenses, many nations did come and they looted uh, Tyre after that. And then uh, we see in verse 12, also they will take your riches as spoils and plunder your merchandise, tear down your walls and destroy your delightful houses and throw your stones, your timbers and your debris into the water. Okay, this is where it starts getting weird. Why in the world would they take the debris of the city and throw it into the water? Well, we know that uh, a few hundred years later, Alexander the Great, uh, 332 BC, attacked the city of Tyre. But at this time, they, a lot of the citizens, they, they, I think they had become tired of being raided. There was a, a, um, uh, an island a half mile out into the Mediterranean Sea, and they relocated the city into Tyre. And you can see here on the map what that uh, looked like a little bit. But Alexander the Great didn't have an, a sufficient navy at the time to, uh, to conquer that. And so they took the remains of the old city of Tyre and threw it into the sea and built a mole or a road, basically, uh, straight out to the, to the city. And they, he did eventually conquer it. 
And you can see this, uh, this is a Google Earth view of uh, what it looks like today. That, that road became a permanent part of the landmass and, uh, and is, is still there today. So that's, that's an old, uh, a prophecy that was fulfilled in, in Old Testament times. Uh, I want to look at the, uh, some messianic prophecies. So things that were prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled uh, through Jesus. Now, there are over 300 messianic prophecies. Um, and God, I believe God provided these in advance so that people would know this, this is Jesus. This, this is the one you're waiting for. And it, if you could put up the next slide. So here's, here's just a list. I, I said there's over 300. Here's just a list of a few of them. Uh, he, he would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, that Herod would come in and kill the children that, uh, when he was young. That he would be preceded by a messenger. He would be resurrected. That he would be betrayed by a friend and sold out for 30 pieces of silver. That he would be silent before his accusers. That he would be crucified among thieves. That his bones wouldn't be broken. And that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. Now, a lot of these were, um, you know, what are the odds that Jesus fulfilled these? Most of them uh, were outside of his, his ability to even control. Obviously, he couldn't, be, he couldn't control, for example, where he was born. Uh, and, and a lot of, you know, some of these were when he was little. But it, what's interesting is, um, so, you know, what are the odds that Jesus either accidentally or intentionally fulfilled some of these things? Um, there was a, a university professor who looked at, he said, let's take 48 of these prophecies and let's look at the, what are the odds that, that, uh, that Jesus fulfilled these. Uh, and he worked with uh, a number of his students, I think several hundred students actually, to put probabilities on, on a lot of these things and, and calculate what, what, are, what are the odds of this. Now, the numbers they came up with are really big. And so just for context, here's... I want, I want you to see how big this number is. So if, uh, if you say, like, how many people are on the earth? It's uh, 8 billion. Uh, that's about 10 to the 10th, roughly. Uh, what's, how many bacteria are on the earth? That's uh, about 10 to the 30th. That's obviously an estimate. And they've even tried to calculate you know, about how many atoms are there on the earth? That's about 10, not, not, I'm sorry, not on the earth. How many atoms are in the universe? They estimate that's about 10 to the 80th power. That's, as you can imagine, that's a really, really big number. We're looking at an even bigger, bigger number here. When they calculated the probability of Jesus fulfilling these 48 prophecies, they came to a number of 10 to the 157th. That's a one followed by 157 zeros. So the... The odds that Jesus accidentally fulfilled these, or even intentionally, uh, is beyond probable. It's, it's impossible. A mathematician would look at a number like that and say, that's, that's an impossible number. So there's, there's, and there's two important points, points uh, to take from this. Number one, Jesus, Jesus is certainly the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament. And, and number two, uh, the writers of these prophecies must have been inspired by God. Otherwise, how could they know that all these things were going to happen if God had not inspired, inspired them to write them? So we, we've, looked at, uh, we've looked at three things this morning. Um, the internal consistency, historical accuracy, and 
prophetic accuracy. You know, but, but what, difference, what difference does that make? Um, and I, I, I just, this is what I want to leave you with. Be, because he gave us his inspired, inerrant, written word, we can have faith in the one who backs it up. You know, and, and that's what I want you to take this morning is uh, because of these outside things that uh, they, they show us the accuracy and the, and the power of God's word, we can trust on it. And, and so when we read these things, uh, God, works, God works together, all things together for good. Uh, we can have faith that God uh, does work through circumstances. And when we read, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, we can, we can have confidence that he empowers us to do what he's called us to do. And when we read, he will never leave you nor forsake you, we know we can have comfort and peace in what God provides. And Terry read this, uh, I know the plans I have for you. We know that God's purposes will stand through it all. And, uh, and, and when he says that, uh, when, when the Bible records the uh, death and resurrection of, of Jesus, we know we can have confidence because of multiple eyewitness accounts of that. Let me pray. Lord God, um, we thank you that you love us. Lord, it is an amazing thing that the God of the universe would love us and send his own son uh, to be the payment for our sins. Thank you, God, that you did that for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice on our behalf. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.